Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So last week I went over a little bit on time and uh, I felt like I sped through that last little bit um, uh, that it was uh, an important subject that I wanted to make sure that I address um, because if, if we look in this book, if you have the book, you don't need the book, but if you have the book, the first beginning section, I think it's the first five or six chapters, we're in chapter four, and I can't remember if next week or the week after ends that first half of the book, but essentially it's, it lays out the problem. What is the issue? What are all, how do we, what's the thing that we're talking about? And then the second half is then now what do you do with it? How do we, how do we deal with these things? So we're here in this, this beginning part, and, and I wanted us to talk about uh, this issue at uh, a plan of repentance. You know, I wanted to say, like, how do we, how do we identify the idols in our life? Uh, that's, the handouts have hopefully helped with that. Uh, if you need handouts from the previous weeks, I can get those to you. Because they, they talk about things that I don't, don't have time to talk about in, in class. Um, that, that we have 45 minutes and there's a lot of material. And, and so I, I want to make sure that you have those things in front of you. But when you do that, uh, how do we then make this plan of repentance? And I was thinking about that last week after uh, class. I was thinking, man, I, I feel like there were more things that I wanted to, I wanted to expand on that a little bit. I felt like I was I don't know if you were here when my son Owen was getting baptized, uh, but the fir- uh, when he first started talking, he was talking about 600 words a second. It was like, I want to tell everybody. <laughs> I said, okay, all right, slow down. I felt like I was doing that at the end of the class. So I want to come back to that. I hope that you have been taking the handouts. Uh, I, if you did not grab one, I, I printed some in the back. If, uh, is there anybody that needs one right now? So I think most everybody up front that were the early birds that got a good seat uh, did not get a handout because the printer was taking a little bit longer. Thank you, Warren. Um, But if you're doing that, you're walking through this process that is being laid out to help us identify what our idols are and then how to kill them. It's key that when you're doing this, that you're praying through this. Praying God, I've said it a lot throughout this class, but it is this is hard to deal with our idols because idols are sneaky and we are deceived by our idols. He's working his way up. Often we look at our idols in our lives and, and we, we like to excuse them or not like to, we do that. We, we uh, make excuses for them. We have a tendency to soften them or to make them out to be good when they aren't. And, and we also are blind to our idols we can identify idols in other people. Just ask me. I'll tell you what yours are. All right? So I'm not specifically saying me. But we, we can do that, but then we can't uh, see them in our own life. I can make a list for my spouse or my friend or my roommate. I can say, okay, this is happening. This is your idol. Um, but then I can't see it in my own life. And it, this isn't because we're stupid, right? I'm, I'm not suggesting that you all are just dunces. No, it's because we don't, um, we are deceived and we need God's help in this. You know, one of the, one of the verses I've encouraged you to pray through this is Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where it says, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, it's uh, when we look at how we should pray, you look in scripture, it has a lot of uh, good examples of things that we can do. But I just want you to be beware. If you pray that prayer, God might answer it. Right? And uh, he, if he answers that prayer and starts to reveal things in your life that need to be dealt with, that can be hard. And we don't like that. So, but this is God's goodness to us. That's one of the things I want to talk about today. This is God's goodness to us. As followers of him, as his adopted children, God wants to work in us to be more like his son. And that happens by the hard task of revealing and, and uncovering how we are not living like Christ. Then once we see it, we need to get to work with the Holy Spirit's help to change and to grow. So last week, I ran through Ephesians 4 and discussed that replacement principle. Or you've probably heard it called the put off and put on principle. It's both the same thing. The idea Paul is getting at here when he wrote this chapter of this letter is that we don't want to keep living like unbelievers because we are believers. We don't want to keep living how we used to because now we are changed and we are different. We, it's not just that we want to stop living like believers, but we can't keep living like unbelievers. We are separated. We're a new creation. We're to be different He's taken his previous teaching and he's distilling it down for us in these small bites so that we can put it into practice what he just taught, taught us. So you see, remember in Ephesians 4.22, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You know, we want this verse to stop right here. We want, this, we want Paul's teaching to just be right here, um, right? What do I need to stop doing? Right? What is it that I just need to quit? I'll stop and life will get better. I just need to, just tell me what to stop and I'll stop it. But it's not that easy. We want the easy fix, right? We want the quick answer. We want the, the um, just the, tell me this, I'll do it, and then we move on. But if we're honest, life doesn't work that way. This is uh, the reason that many Christians just throw their hands up in defeat and say, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. They see things going bad. They've tried really hard to stop doing these things, but it doesn't get any better. You know, they, you, you've been there. You, you try to push through gritted teeth, hard effort, and I, if I just, just do it, if I could just do it, I, I just got to stick with it. Bible says put it off. I'm gonna just gonna, I'm gonna try really hard. And you know, sometimes it works for a little bit. You ever had that where I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, this is a, this sin, I, I just keep going back to this thing over and over and over again. I'm gonna stop and I get a week under my belt. I'm like, I did it. Yeah, got it. And then we're tempted. Life gets hard. I can't grip my teeth hard enough anymore. And I, give in a little bit. Before you know it, we're right back where we started. We're right back there, or we're even worse, right? This, is, this happens. This is, this is one of those things that uh, you see the, the world do as well, 
right? They, they try hard enough. And so then they get somebody to, hey, I need you to remind me when I stop doing this to start doing this this way. And I'm going to try really hard, but I need you to try really hard to keep me in check, right? So we're really asking another person to be our conscience. That's why I, uh, I'm always, when somebody says, hey, will you be my accountability partner? I said, what do we mean by accountability? Because accountability is good and we need accountability partners, but I will not be the person that follows you around and tells you where you're doing, doing wrong. I'm not your conscience. I can't be that and I will let you down. And uh, then I am not going to be blamed for your sin because I couldn't keep up with you, right? We, we've got to be careful that we, we don't have that expectation. We do too often. We do have that expect, expectation too often. So, I, I tell people that in this replacement principle, the put off and put on and renewing the mind, okay? If we're going to do that, if we're going to do the put off and we're not going to work on doing the renewing the mind, then we're just chasing the wind. It's, it's not going to last and it, it's not going to work. We've, we've got to have this, all these pieces together, put off, renew the mind and put on. Right? We, we have to have all these components to see real change happen. And it doesn't happen, like I've just said, on our own efforts. There are things that we must do. We have personal responsibility. I'm not saying that we just let go and let God. Like, that doesn't work either. Right? There are things we do, but we have to rely on God's help all along the way. We need his strength because we are weak and powerless without him. So let's say, all right, we've been in this four weeks. You've, you're committed. All right, I'm going to work on identifying idols. Um, what are some idols that I need to address? You look at Ephesians 4.22 here, and then it says, here's what I need to put off, but then how do I repent of it, right? I, this tells me I got re- to put off the formal way of living. What role does that renewing the mind play in this? At times, this can be confusing because if we look at this Ephesians 4, it says put off, Renew the mind, put on. And we think that that is the, that's the, uh, the order that it goes in. Okay, we got to do this, and then we do this. Step one, put off. Step two, renew the mind. Step three, put on. But it isn't as clear cut as that. Um, usually it works where we are renewing our mind. We're in God's word. We're reading it. Or we are uh, fellowshipping with other believers, and we're talking about what we're learning and it is brought to our attention either by somebody else or the Holy Spirit reminds us or we just are thinking about things. We see an area that we need work on. You're doing these handouts. We're coming to a class. Whatever it is that you may be, but it's brought to your mind, but you've been trying to renew your mind. You've been working on that. Um, and so then now you're convicted of that. You say, I, I need to repent of that. I need to um, look at what now do I need to put on. This is what I need to put off. This is what I need to put on. So those handouts over these last couple of weeks have helped to identify those things. If we're doing those things, that will help in that renewing of the mind. But some of these things happen kind of at the same time. That put off and that renewing the mind sometimes go together in there. But one of the verses, I, we talked through Ephesians 4, uh, yeah, Ephesians 4, uh, but one of the verses I didn't mention that I really think is very helpful in repentance is Psalm 32.5, okay? This is a chapter where King David is talking about the forgiveness that he received from God after his sin with Bathsheba. He is praising God and he's telling what life was like when he was in his sin, 
It says his bones were wasting away and he, they groaned all day long. He was broken over his sin. In this chapter, he lays out specific, three specific things that he did to repent. So in this Ephesians 30, or excuse me, Psalm 32, 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. He's, this is David writing the psalm to God. He's speaking to God here. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So in that right there, if we are recognizing, we're renewing our mind, we're in God's word, we're wanting to change, we're wanting to grow, we recognize an area, an idol that we need to repent of, we've got to put this off. Here are three things that we can do in that put-off process that helps to do that. What, what three things do you see, and I, you can give me feedback on this, in that what are three things that David did in his repentance? He confessed. He acknowledged. He acknowledges his sin. What's step two or the second one? He didn't cover it up or uncovers it, right? He says he doesn't cover it, but he uncovers it, right? So number one, he acknowledges his sin. He doesn't just say, this is a sin. But he identifies that the sin that it is. He names it. Acknowledgement is recognizing that it exists and admits that it is real and that it is true. That's the first step. You've got to get to a place where you see the thing in your life is actually sin, and that it is an idol. We've got to recognize uh, the trouble and pain that is in our lives is, be, is, is being caused by sin. Now maybe we name it what the sin is. Pride or selfishness or whatever. Sometimes what we do when we get to that point is we start to minimize it. Uh, or we blow it off as not that big of a deal. But acknowledgement to God is agreeing with him that what we are seeing is a big deal because all sin is a big deal. There are no little white lies. There aren't cute little flubs we make, but our sin is filthy rags that stands in stark opposition to God's demand to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have received. We've got to recognize what it is, and name it. And then he says, he um, did not cover his iniquity or sin. Or really, you can say he uncovered it. He's not trying to excuse it. He's, he's not giving it a pass like, like, oh, I messed up. Oh, I blundered this one. No, he uncovered it. By uncovering it, he is making it known. You see, in Psalm 30, after Psalm 32, or when, whenever it was, David wrote Psalm 32, he also wrote Psalm 51, which essentially is a psalm of lament for his sin. He's expressing his understanding of his sin and crying out to God for forgiveness. He's writing something that becomes part of the canon, which we, <laughs> we read. That's uncovering it, Right? He's making it known. He, he, well, so step three, right? He confesses it. When Nathan tells the story and David is outraged, 
He says, we need to get this man. Nathan tells David, you are the man. This leads David to confess his sin to the Lord. Have you ever had the thought that God is sovereign? He knows what I've done. I don't need to confess because I get it now and and God already knows. Well, Nathan was sent by God to confront David. We see in 2 Samuel 12 that David knows this. He knows that David, or excuse me, that David knows that Nathan has been sent by God. But he confesses anyway. He says, I will confess to the Lord. It was me. I will do this. This is the way to act when we're faced with our own sin. We, we must confess it to God. And if there's sin that we've commit, committed against someone else, we need to confess it to them as well. These three, strep, these three steps are crucial in our effort to put off our idols and to walk anew in Christ's righteousness that we are to put on. The principle of putting off the wrong thinking and actions we do and putting on doing the right thing is simple in concept, okay? Stop doing this. Think about the way that we should do this. Think about it rightly and do the right thing. That's pretty simple. But in reality, in how this actually works in practice, this takes effort and it isn't easy. It may be simple, but it isn't easy. This doesn't come naturally to us. We may have desires to stop doing the wrong thing, but our flesh is weak. Hey, on the back of your handout today uh, is a couple of examples to walk you through this, how we see sin. Do I have that handout? I don't have one in front of me. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. I put it in here. And that's super small print, so if you're like me and you need glasses already, right? Okay, so here's, a, here's how it works. There are two different, uh, two different areas that uh, here. So one on the left, one on the right. One on the left is, okay, I have identified an idol, which is comfort and recognition. I identified this by what is the sin? How is this evidenced in my life? Um, I see self-pity and complaining. Uh, I'm saying too much in moments of despair. I'm talking about things I shouldn't talk about. I'm saying things I shouldn't say when I'm despairing or fear or frustration. And then give some examples here. So going on and on to someone about parenting woes or some leadership responsibility I'm facing. Guilty of exaggeration and excessive drama and negativity. Um, We're not talking, no, I'm I'm not going to say a joke. Saying too much at times when people ask how I'm doing. And this is the wrong thinking. Okay, how did I get to that point? What am I saying to myself or what am I believing? Okay, we all have an internal dialogue. And I, and I will talk with people and they'll, they'll explain this to me. This is what's going on. This is what's happened to me. Okay, and things do happen to us, right? So I say, what are you telling yourself? So often people say nothing. And I'm like, well, that isn't true. Okay, um, but here's why people say that. I don't think anyone's lying to me when they say that. I don't think a single person's lying. We are always thinking. Our mind is always going. So much so that we don't even recognize when we're doing it. We don't even recognize the thoughts that are going through our mind. So it does take time to slow things down. Right? What is it that I'm telling myself? What is this internal dialogue? When my spouse says that cutting comment again and again to me, what's my response inside? 
you take some time to think about it, you'll realize, oh, I'm saying something. I'm, I'm telling myself something. I don't like this. I have it so hard. I shouldn't have to do this. I can't do all of this. It's not fair. So if we're thinking that way, we need to replace that thinking with something. If that's the wrong thoughts, what are the right thoughts? And I list some things. Actually, I didn't list. This is uh, Brad Bigney. This isn't me. So um, he puts, what are some new thinking? And if once we change that thinking, what are the new actions? What are the things we need to do? Different. But, okay, we can't miss this last part of the scripture to memorize. Because if we just did this right here with all this right now, it's like, okay, now, now we're just changing. We just do, do the work yourself. Just think differently. And it's like, okay, great. So how do we do this? Here's a verse to memorize. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, which is this body right now, this life I'm living, I need to live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So when I want to say, ugh, I don't want this spouse. Well, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live for me. I live for Christ. Would Christ say that about my spouse? Those are the types of things that we memorize. Let's go to that. Grab a verse that I can meditate on. What's the thing I can use there? Or whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that we're, the inheritance I'm going to get is not here. It's, a, it's eternal, right? That's an eternal reward. Or then you can go to the other one about kids and how do we deal with kids, right? So he has this instance where he got angry too quickly with the kids, gets in the face, his son's face, yells at him, says, okay. Well, I say him. I don't know. It could have been a wife too. I don't know if it's husband or wife. It doesn't matter. It's a parent there. Um, so how do we deal with those things? So But the, thi- the thing is, as we go through acknowledging, uncovering, confessing, changing, using these principles here, the fuel that drives all of this effort is God's word. What is that verse that I can pull out, that I can meditate on, that I can use, right? And if you don't have one, I don't know. What does God's word say? Ask somebody. Go, this is the, this is the beauty of the church, the local church, right? We're not to, everything I'm talking about in this class is not just you all by yourself doing it, right? You can't. There's work that you need to do. We need to be relying on God and his word, but we also need to rely on fellow believers. Um, We need to be open with them. That's where I think the uncovering of our sin, Nathan, excuse me, David uncovers his sin to Nathan. He says, that's me. I do see it. You're right. I was the one. I am in agreement with you. I recognize I was wrong. So there is that interaction. In the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp writes, do you have any conflict in your life? Do you experience moments of extreme irritation towards someone you otherwise love? Are there people who simply push your buttons more than others? Do certain things drive you crazy on a daily basis? Why does it seem that people, things, and situations are in our way? Why do we seldom go through a day without some experience of conflict? The answer to all these questions is that we think of our lives as our own. 
And we are more committed to the purposes of our own kingdom than we are God's. We need to recognize that the people in our way have been sent to us by a wise and sovereign king. He never gets a wrong address and always chooses just the right moment to expose our hearts and realign them to his. There never seems to be a good time to go through a trial. I, I don't remember a time in my life when I'm like, hey, this would be a great time for something bad to happen. Never. I have never said that. Um, it always seems to take us off guard. Like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. Why did it happen? And it always seems to be at the worst time, right? How many parents in here have small children or had small children and recognize what is the worst morning of the week to get the family ready and out the door? Sunday morning, right? Um, I don't know what Lionel Richie was thinking when he said easy like Sunday morning. He clearly didn't go to church, right? It never ceases to amaze me. Every weekday, our family of five is able to wake up, shower, shave, brush teeth, get dressed, eat breakfast, get our stuff together, and get out the door before 7.30. But Sunday morning comes around when I'm looking forward to worshiping together with all of you and my family. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, people that I don't normally see or I don't—sometimes I only see you on Sunday morning, ready to sing and hear God's word preached. Need to be here by 9 a.m., Okay? And World War III breaks out. Like, what in the world? Everybody decides this is the morning we are going to address every grievance that we have had for the last month, right? This is the perfect time to get amnesia and forget how things operate in our house. Everyone seems uh, surprised that we have something to do this morning. Like, what? It's Sunday? What? We, we're going to church? Like, these boys have. Grown up going to church every Sunday. This is when and how God decides to reveal my heart. And sadly, it's pretty ugly some Sunday mornings. Um, I remember when I was little, my mom, you know, we, we had the phones on the wall. I don't know if you kids know what that's like with the, the cable there. And my mom would be like, kids, I want you to get to da 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 Hello, this is Krista. I was like, how can you do that? And I feel like some Sunday mornings, I'm like, hey, everybody. It's like, I almost strangled my child this morning. So, no. I can't tell you how many times that I've quoted to myself and to others Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But Sunday morning when all things come about seems like really bad timing for God. You know, this doesn't seem to be good. Uh, this doesn't seem to be addressing or helping me. I want the good. I want the good. Uh, but I got to go through the bad to get to the good, right? Brad in this book points out Ecclesiastes 7.14 that says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Oh, yep, we can do that. We can be joyful when, it's, when there's prosperity, but that verse continues on. It says, but in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. God appoints these things in our lives and the timing for when they come. The conflict in your life is a divine appointment. It didn't take God by surprise. He isn't 
sitting on his throne in heaven going, well, maybe I shouldn't have put those two together. Hmm. His Enneagram number clashes with hers. I should have seen that one coming, but oops. No, no. He had every intention of that coming at you, and it is to expose your ugly and draw you back to him. When you're at odds with another person and your blood is boiling and the end is nowhere in sight, God is using that to flush out the idols of your heart. These trials stir up and sift out the idols so that we can see them and address them. I remember um, um, Al Mohler was talking about, in uh, it was an interview or something, I can't remember, how he uh, encourages young single people uh, to not live alone. So get a roommate before you get married. So guys, get, a, get another male roommate, ladies, that sort of thing. He says, because you, you'll find out if you live alone, um, you're perfect. Nothing is wrong until you get married. And then you realize, oh, wow, you know, there, there's some issues here. Right? When you live with somebody, those things are brought to our attention, right? So we see that when the dishes are in the, the sink, again, and we've already decided Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my days, and the others are your days, and today is Tuesday, and you haven't done it, right? That's when we start to deal with our own heart. We need those other people. We, God uses people in conflict to bring these things up. He, in the book, uses the analogy of getting your car aligned. You know, we, we got to get the, we get new tires put on our car and you got to align, align it, right? Um, because we're driving the car. We need the alignment because we drive the car. You hit curbs, you drive over a speed bump too quickly, you screech, whatever, you know, stop. All those things uh, are things that are working against the alignment that the mechanic just did. So as soon as we leave the mechanic, we are working against everything he just did. So he's saying, like, we just, we need this align, alignment. And we recognize we need the alignment at some point, right? It pulls over to the one side. You've got to drive the car like this because it won't stay straight. You know, have you ever had a steering wheel like that? Um, or it's like squealing or screeching, that sort of thing. These are things that are identifying or um, exhibiting that it needs to be aligned, right? And it's the same thing with our hearts, that we need an, an occasional realignment. We get jostled and bumped and body slammed by life, and consequently, our hearts get out of alignment. The good news about our hearts is that we don't need to remember to set an appointment to get that alignment taken care of. God's got it taken care of. He's got it on his calendar. He's going to make it happen. And he chooses the right time, the right location, the right people to expose our hearts and realign them to his. The conflict that we resent and hate is God's appointment for a realignment of our hearts. Now, that realignment is not naturally what we do. Our motivations and tendencies are to change our circumstances or to change the other person. That's like the idea of my car needs a realignment, so just get a new car, right? No one would do that. Couples come in for marriage counseling with their troubles, and it's not uncommon for the husband or the wife to say to me, Here, here's our problem. Here's the issue. They'll lay it out. 
this is what's happened, this has gone on for this amount of time, that sort of thing, right? No, no, that, that's good. And then they'll wrap up with, but if you could help my spouse show them where they need to change, everything will be good. And sometimes we talk, talk that, tell that as a joke, but I have heard that countless times. Maybe not as clear as that, but that is exactly what they're saying. Sometimes it is true. The other spouse is a big jerk and they need to be worked on, but it doesn't mean that the, the person that's perceiving that doesn't have work that they need to do as well, right? We want to change the other person. We change our circumstances. Do the, if these things would change outside of me, I'd, I'd be much better. I wouldn't have to deal with these things. Life would be good. God is saying to you that he's got you in this situation to change you. Remember James 4, 1 through 8. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Remember, when you see the word passions here and desires, they are synonymous. Okay? You're, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. And when he's saying adulterous people there, he is not necessarily or only talking about adultery, cheating on your husband or wife. He's talking about adultery with God, right? That we are, we are his. And when we live for something other than that, we're committing adultery. You get that, that picture that he's laying out here? Do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See there in verse 8? double-minded. Our hearts go back and forth. There's more than one thing that we're thinking. We want to do one thing, but we do something else. That's what causes so much confusion for us and fuels the conflicts. It causes confusion and conflicts with God and with others. We aren't 100% focused on pleasing God, and we don't commit 100% of the time to serve others. We switch between promoting God's kingdom and promoting our own many kingdoms. The problem isn't with your boss or your spouse or your kids. The problem is with your heart. See, in verses 1 and 2 James, in James 4, he uses the words passions and desires. I said those can be synonymous. Another word that we could use that's a synonym would be craving. James is saying this to all of us. These quarrels and fights, they come from these cravings that are within us. So what are you craving? It's a good question to ask. What is it that I'm wanting? What is the desire of my heart? I tell you, if you look at the relationships right now and ask, where am I having conflict? The two are not unrelated. Con cravings underlie conflict. Our desires are underneath or pushing the conflict. Now, it's not wrong 
one of the things that we can pull out of that, we can read that James 4 passage and go, okay, so I shouldn't have desires or cravings or passions. That's, the, that's my takeaway. Don't have those. Good luck with that. That won't happen. It won't. Uh, it's not wrong, believe it or not, to have desires or cravings. It's actually good to desire a godly marriage. It is a wonderful desire to have kids, to, to desire to have kids that grow up to love the Lord, who are obedient and cheerful. It is a really good desire to have a job that makes you feel accomplished or that fulfills you, that you feel like this is something I, I like doing and I want to do. Those are good desires. There's nothing wrong with those desires in and of themselves. But idolatry hijacks legitimate desires and turns them into ugly demands. Again, in this book, um, Pastor Brad quotes Paul Tripp from his book, Instruments in the the Redeemer's Hands. Um, In this, he has this thing of what happens in our lives, in our relationships, how this works. Okay, so he, he walks us through. We have a desire. This is, I wish something. I would like something, okay? So, I want to have nice clothes. I want to have a happy Sunday morning, okay? Let's just use that example of a Sunday morning, okay? Since I've already used that one. I would like for this morning to wake up and everybody to be happy and we just, life goes on good there, so. But here's what happens with that. We go from this desire that then is not quite met, and it turns into a demand, okay? It's not, it sure would be nice if the kids would get ready for church in the, this morning. It is they will. I demand that they get ready without help, without problems, without doing things. So it goes from holding it with an open hand to this closed white-knuckled fist. I demand it. It has to happen. Now, here's the thing about idols. This is what we happens when it gets really ugly. We take that demand and we relabel it as a need. I must have this. Our culture has helped us down this road very well with psychology that encourage us to progress from that desire of whatever it is to I, I need this. It's a need. If you understood my background, if you understood what I've been through, if you knew the brokenness that I have experienced, if you knew the kind of parents I had, then you would recognize and agree with me that I need to have this in my own life. Because if I don't get it, then I'm going back to the same way that I grew up as, and and I, I can't do that. I can't function without it. Things have to be this way. It's not just a desire. It's not just a demand. It's now a need. Now, this is what happens. If it's something I need, well, now I, ex- I have expectations with that, right? I, this is something now I expect you to do, to meet my need. You've got to do it. And when the um, expectations kick in of you must do this, you know what happens? They don't do it. They don't meet our expectations. We all have expectations. And other people are not going to meet our expectations all the time. But if they loved us, if they really loved us, they would really know what I needed, right? I wouldn't have to tell them. You ever heard that? 
Is that like one to make you pull your hair out? Like, I don't know what it is. Tell me and I will do it, right? But once those expectations kick in and then the expectations are unmet, well, then you get disappointed. And we shouldn't be surprised when our expectations are unmet because we're expecting a sinner to serve us perfectly and know what our needs are. Um, and we're putting these expectations on a sinner. And we get disappointed. And then when you get disappointed, oh, well, you didn't do that. You didn't meet my expectations. And you'll see this in marriages where somebody has had expectations that were unmet for a very long time. They didn't deal with the conflict, didn't deal with their own heart. They get divorced and they go to another person. They get married to another person or have another relationship, whatever it is, with the same expectations of a person thinking, oh, this will fix it. They will do it. And maybe for a little while they do, right? Because not, not everyone 100% of the time doesn't meet our expectations. I guess sometimes that can happen. But, you know, it's not, that isn't always the case. But we do this with our spouses. We do this with our boss. We do it with our roommate, our kids, anyone else. We don't realize that we're just moving needs from one center to another. So once we get disappointed and you didn't do this, it becomes because you didn't do that, because you didn't meet my needs, now I will do this. I'm going to return evil for evil. Or because you didn't, now I won't do this. Right? You didn't meet my needs, so now I'm going to punish you. I'll leave. I won't have sex anymore. I won't pick up your dry cleaning. I'm not going to serve you in any way. You are going to get punished for not meeting my needs. There are a lot of methods and books out there that claim to help avoid this stuff. One of the, uh, a bestseller with millions of copies sold is His Needs, Her Needs. Um, listen, there, there are legitimate things we need, right? We need air to live. We need water. We need food. Um, but when we look at how our hearts operate and what these books are promoting, what they're doing is they're going to give you a list of things that someone must meet to make you happy. You read a book when you are focused on yourself that is telling you how to focus on yourself and how somebody can serve you. That's not the heart of the gospel. And it's not how God has designed relationships to be. We would be far more helped if we studied God's word and focused on what it means to die to self rather than what my needs are or what my Enneagram number and how you should relate to me or my Myers-Briggs letters and trying to find combatib compatibility. That's a self-focused road that leads to disappointment and more and more conflict. If you're in conflict, question to ask as you're trying to figure out how do we resolve this conflict is, what is it I'm living for? What am I wanting in this? And identify what is the idol that's, that's pushing that. Okay? That's today's lesson. All right? Let me pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the hard trials that you put us through. We know, we, we, we believe that all things are for our good and for your glory. 
But we have a hard time believing that when we're in the moment, when things are hard. Help us to do that. Help us to remember that. Help us to examine our own hearts and address those. Lord, draw us to you. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.